You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. As they're going, let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our text for this morning, which is still in the book of Amos, chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Amos, chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. This morning, as we were singing together, I, I couldn't help but think on that last song that I don't think that there is any more comforting truth than that our God is sovereign over us. I hope that as you sing together on Sunday mornings that you are in tune with the particular words of our songs because they have incredibly rich meaning. They are selected on purpose. And there's one right there that is I would say pregnant with truth. He is sovereign over us. We need that truth today. We need that truth in these times. We need that truth as we come to his word this morning to Amos chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. Now, as I look around at our church and I look around at other groups in the world, one thing that stands out to me, and I think it's a really clear expression of God's sovereignty over us, his ultimate control, is that I see in people uh, a hard wiring for brotherhood. I mean, look at the groups of people that, that you're a part of or that you know of or, or, or what our, our church is like. Even despite and beyond the fall of man, God has preserved this kind of hardwired brotherhood among us. It's as if every single person in the world desperately wants to belong. We want to belong somewhere. We want to belong to someone or someones. And it is an important part of our church. Our church is built on covenant. That's why we have covenant membership. In fact, we have a a new member class coming up, which is a great opportunity for you to learn more about the church and to consider what church membership is all about. But in particular, it it is meaningful. It is covenant church membership. It is covenant brotherhood. Now, I think, and I hope that you do too, that there is no brotherhood like the church. Now, sometimes it certainly doesn't feel that way. Sometimes we fail one another. But in reality, according to God's definition, according to God's plan and purpose, there really is no brotherhood like the church. Now, every other group has some way of identifying their brotherhood, you know, even in, in companies that we may go to work for. They have something like a mission statement, something that's, that's binding everyone together that they agree to. There are clubs in school and out of school that have some kind of initiation rite that you must go through to signify your brotherhood together. I know that there have been kids, I may have been one of them, who when I was younger spit in my palm and my friend spit in his palm and we shook hands together and we made a a pact. The tougher kids on our playground chose instead of spitting in their hands to cut their hands so they bled and put their blood together. We do not recommend that whatsoever. But they became, they became blood brothers, they believed. And all of that works together to highlight again and again the hard wiring, the, the essential brotherhood nature of what it means to be a human being, that all of us seek it and we find ways to signify it. And again, 
we're reminded as we look out at the world at spit on palms and, and mission statements that there is no, there's no brotherhood like the church. And that's because the grounds of our brotherhood is unlike any other. Our brotherhood is not based on anything that we can do or that we can say or that we have chosen to shake someone's hand. But our brotherhood is because God has chosen to shake ours in grace. Ours is, is based in the gospel. Ours is based in the person of Jesus Christ. And because God is the God of covenant love, we have this opportunity as a church to belong to real brotherhood. That's what we're chasing. That's what we're pursuing as a church. And that's something that we see this morning in our text from Amos. Now, I want to remind you that as we come to the Old Testament, again, as I've referred to it a couple of weeks ago, to passages in the Bible that are less familiar to us, they're, they're harder for us sometimes to digest because we feel a little more distance from that geographic or historic context, and, and sometimes they don't get as much attention. I want to remind you what we're doing here. What we're doing here as we come back to the Old Testament again for a number of weeks, I think, uh, you know, through October in the book of Amos, is we're trying to become even more well-rounded Christians. We want to become Christians that love all of God's word, that know all of God's history with his people, but not only the history, but how that history intersects with our lives today. And it does so because we look back at the Old Testament and, and we see accounts of certain things happening in history or God doing certain things in this case and what it will be like for many weeks coming is his seriousness about sin and his judgment in the world. But we're not just trying to learn about historic facts. We're not just trying to build a timeline. We're trying to know our God. And by knowing our God and looking him squarely in the face in the words of Scripture, that we would understand what he is like and what he has saved us to be like, what he's doing in us. And I think that is particularly true this morning as we come to this text. And as I have spent time here, I have had my soul helped and nurtured, and I hope that you will too, especially, especially with the idea of brotherhood, how we can maintain it, how we can keep it strong, and how we can glorify our God through it, even by seeing God's seriousness about it in this passage, just a few verses in Amos chapter 1. So we're going to see three truths here, again, about God's judgment over people around the, the northern kingdom, the nation of Israel, his chosen people, as he was showing his seriousness for sin in all of these places. And here we come to two new places, Tyre and Edom, two new groups of people that you'll see across these just three points of how we can live by the covenant of brotherhood. And this is first. We're seeing again what it was that these groups of people were doing that welcomed the judgment of God. And by so, we are able to see into the heart of God to see what he loves, what he treasures, and what most glorifies him and most satisfies us. It's a fantastic opportunity. As we notice this first, Tyre, the people of Tyre, they welcomed the judgment of God because they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Tyre did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Now, Tyre was a place similar to the place we read about last week called Gaza, which was one of the strongest cities in the area, both because of wealth 
and because of influence. And as a result of that, um, working on the remaining sin in their hearts, it led them to this arrogance and this, this conquering of other people and this cruel treatment of them, just as we have seen in the other verses of Amos chapter 1. And they were guilty, just like Gaza last week, in particular, of slave trading. Let's look at verse 9 and verse 10. This is what the Lord says, For three offenses of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke its punishment. Because they turned an entire population over to Edom. This is that picture of, of trading people, of conquering people, and then handing them over to others that they would be mistreated, that they would be, they would be cruelly enslaved. Now, of course, this should hit home to us because we see this all around our world. The history of our world is full of this kind of mistreatment. But what I want you to see this morning is what exactly awakened the wrath and judgment of God, as it's put here in this text, is something that Tyre did in the acts that they were committing. Why was it that they treated other people this way? Why did they hand over entire populations, in fact, perhaps peaceful populations, over into the hands of enemies? And it's here in these words, and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Here's the big issue. If you want to take this away as I like to looking at the Bible, what is the big issue in this text and for our lives? Tyre did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. Now let's get something straight. When you read, did not remember the covenant of brotherhood, this does not mean that they forgot their covenant of brotherhood. What it seems happened at this time and other places and through other texts, which we're going to read, is that two people came to a kind of covenant agreement. And their covenant agreement was that they would have a treaty together and that they would become brothers. They would work together. They would care for one another. And so what seems happened is that with this entire population, whoever they were, Tyre had made this covenant, one that should have been uh, characterized by loyalty and love perhaps between Israel and Tyre, that they intentionally, not forgot, but they intentionally did not remember the covenant of their brotherhood. This is sort of similar, this not remembering, is similar to what God does for us in our sin. You know that when God forgives you of your sin, he does not, as, as we like to say in kind of modern vernacular, forgive and forget God never forgives and forgets. In fact, for him, it's impossible. He can't forget anything. But rather, the Bible teaches us that what he does for us by grace is that he remembers your sin no more. There's an intentionality to that that's far better than just forgiving and then forgetting or acting as though something didn't happen. What has he done? He has intentionally chosen to remember your sin and mine in Christ no more. Well, on the opposite of that, you can hear and understand what Tyre did. It was not an accident that they happened to forget the covenant of brotherhood, perhaps with Israel, but rather that they intentionally remembered it no more. They did this because 
this kind of remembering no more, this kind of covenant breaking, this kind of cruel mistreatment of other people is inherent to the human heart. We like to think, right? We like to think of ourselves and people of the world as basically good, but the Bible teaches us a far different story, a far different picture of our sin, that instead at the very heart of who we are is something and someone sinister. I loved this song when I was a young Christian. It's by a group called Cademan's Call, which was led by somebody named Derek Webb. They're not together anymore. But this was a song I listened to over and over and over again, and in particular because of the first line. The song is called The Only One. And so the song is about God and how he is not a covenant breaker. He does not remember his covenant no more over his people, but we do. And this is how it goes. It comes on the album, Long Line of Leavers, because this is the first line. Listen carefully. It tells us something very important about ourselves, very important about these people. It says, I come from a long line of leavers, out of the garden gate with an apple in their hands. I expect and I believe you're going to run out of love. You're going to give me the shove. Because that's the thing that lovers do. Now, what I want you to capture from that is something so insightful about the human heart as just these few words of this verse point out, this is what human lovers do. We all come from a long line of leavers. We all come from a long line of covenant breakers. But what were those last three words in just that one verse? He says, then there's you. Then there's you, God. You are not like this. You are not a covenant breaker. You're not someone who, who remembers your covenant no more as the people of Tyre did and handed this whole, this whole population over to Edom. He is the ultimate covenant keeper. He keeps his covenant to a thousand generations. And it is for that very reason that he hates the covenant breaking of Tyre. Read those words again. We don't want to miss them. I will not revoke its punishment. Verse 10, I will send fire on the walls of Tyre and it will consume her citadels. You're hearing again and again this really serious language of what God thinks about those who break the covenant of brotherhood. Now, this should be no surprise to us because the Word of God tells us in lots of other places the kinds of things that God hates. In fact, here's one in Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19, where you see that same numbered grading that we've been seeing in Amos. You see where it happened in the first verse this morning for three offenses of Tyre and for four. It's a way of ramping up the seriousness and the perspective on the, the cruelty of the people. Well, here we read in Proverbs 6 where it says, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are in abomination to him. And here they are, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. These are all things that perfectly characterize the people of Tyre and others that God is bringing his judgment upon in these passages. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil. False witness who declares lies, 
and one who spreads strife among brothers. You hear even in just those words, God's utter seriousness about keeping, not breaking, remembering, not forgetting, the covenant of brotherhood. Even a covenant of brotherhood that's made out in the world, God expects to be kept. But then how much more in here, in the assembly of God's people, that we would keep the covenant of brotherhood. This is so important for our lives. This is so important for our church. We have come through a year when there was incredible temptation. There was incredible trial to lead us out of our covenant of brotherhood, to provoke us or tempt us to turn against one another. But by God's grace, as I I said yesterday in the message that went out last night through Church Center, I am so thankful for how our church has fared. And do you know why I think that is? I think it's because we together, by our covenant brotherhood over the last eight or nine years, have done really serious church life. And because of that, because of grace, because of God's work, we were well prepared. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a reason for us to keep taking seriously the covenant of brotherhood because here we know that there's no, there is no greater covenant than one that brings us together with Christ and the people of God. So here's our first application of the text. We want to apply it along the way. It's simply this. We must be intentional to remember the covenant of brotherhood. Just as we don't accidentally forget it, we actually intentionally remember it no more, we don't accidentally remember it. We have to continue working at that, don't we? We have to keep it before our eyes. We have to keep our, our commitment, our handshake together in Christ, our common covenant so that we can stay close to one another as instruments in the Redeemer's hands for good, not as what we've seen here in Tyre, which is to do things that are offensive, do things that are cruel, rather than bring in to hand over. Well, next we're going to turn our attention to that second group of people, which is Edom, as we see even more of the ugliness, of the ugly detail of not remembering the covenant of brotherhood. And here's what we see Edom has done. Having had a whole population handed over to them, what has Edom done? Most likely with the people of God, Edom stifled his compassion. Edom stifled his compassion. Now, I think he's using that word his to refer to these people because he's using it as a reference back to the history with Jacob and Esau. You remember that? They had this parental, uh, or this uh, prenatal kind of struggle from the very beginning together. And Edom was then the descendants of Esau, and Edom was an enemy of Israel throughout much of history. Most of the time, Edom was subject to Israel. But when Edom had its chance, when these events unfolded, you see what they did to their brother. You see what they did to this covenant of brotherhood. 
It may be that Edom joined an alliance with the Philistines and the Arabs to attack them. Hear these words. This is what the Lord says for, here it is again, three offenses of Edom. And for four, I will not revoke its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and stifled his compassion. You hear it again in that word brother. It's, it's that same kind of thing of the covenant of brotherhood. There's a kind of treaty that has been struck that, that has made them shake and become brothers. But like Tyre, what has Edom done? They have remembered the covenant of brotherhood no more. But here, what's so helpful about this passage is it gives us an even clearer look into exactly what's going on in the hearts of these people who break the covenant. We see that number one, at the end of verse, um, at the middle of verse 11, stifled his compassion. And that led them to pursue with the sword. So you see how there's something going on in the heart and it comes out in the actions. That's the way we always know it to be. All of these things come from the heart. Having stifled his compassion, they pursued with the sword. Now, this is such helpful language, I think, when we break it down and look at it very slowly, just that phrase, stifled his compassion. What a great word. When you hear that word stifle, maybe like me, you think of, you think of heat. If you don't think of it right now, you're going to think of it in just a few minutes when you go outside because it's pretty hot. You feel the stifling heat. You know that word stifle actually comes from a Middle English word. It's, it's a little bit the same. Stuffle. Maybe we should start using that. That would be interesting if we... So this heat is so stuffling. It's to stuffle is to kill. But it's to kill this way. It's to kill by cutting off the air. That's why we say that on a hot day. You feel like you have a hard time breathing and stifling. The heat is taking away the air. It wasn't that long ago we were looking at things online as, uh, as the military made some advances, and you may have seen this a, a few years ago. Uh, the military came out with a new, a new kind of bomb called MOAB, which actually stands for Massive Ordnance Air Blast, but it was kind of renamed the Mother of All Bombs because there was no other bomb as devastating well, what is so devastating about Moab is that it is a thermobaric bomb. That means that, that when it explodes, it eats up all of the surrounding oxygen everywhere. It sucks in oxygen from within you, from around you, and all that is left is fire. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that feeling? We've had little moments of maybe that experience where you, you fall backward off a ladder and you, you hit your back on the ground and all of a sudden you can't catch your breath. You've had the wind knocked out of you. You know that feeling? It is a panicking, horrible feeling to not be able to take a breath. You feel like you're going to, to die. Sometimes you feel like that when a sibling holds you under the water of the pool and you feel your air running out, the bubbles are chasing to the top, you, you are not going to make it. The heat is stifling. But for these people, notice how the word is used. They didn't stifle oxygen. They stifled compassion. It was the stifling of compassion that leads to and springs from this spiritual problem. It is a spiritual problem where the covenant of brotherhood has been broken. I might call this oppositional attitude disorder. 
Now, this is not an official diagnosis. This is just a descriptor, like, like all disorders. But it really fits what's going on in this passage, and it really fits what often is going on in your heart and mine. Because of remaining sin, there is this, this way in which our hearts become stuck in opposition to someone else, right? You feel this. You feel the compassion just flying out of your heart, and all that's left is a kind of fury and rage. And, and when you feel this, you, you may do what, what many do, and you pursue, like they did, you pursue your enemy. It becomes a kind of attitude, an, an oppositional attitude, well, that's what's going on here in Edom. That's what's going on inside of us. That's why this passage is so, so helpful, because they stifled their compassion. Compassion. You know, that's a word that simply means brotherly feeling. That's what the word compassion means. It is to have a brotherly feeling for someone else. That brotherly feeling. It's the, it's the feeling of relating to someone else, knowing that you are the same that you come from the same place, that you come from the same womb. Well, this right here is central to why even we are tempted sometimes to break the covenant of brotherhood when suddenly there's a conflict between us and someone else or there's some kind of disagreement or, or someone is depriving us of something that we, we desperately want or think that we desperately need. We stifle our compassion. Friends, don't let this passage stay back there in the Old Testament in the history of Israel. Pull this forward. As a good, counseling, loving church, this is one of our key opportunities to look into our own hearts and to consider this dynamic and how it works out even today, just as it did then. Because you too, like I, sometimes stifle compassion. You suck the, the oxygen out of it so that it cannot live. And all that it is replaced with is fire. And there we are just breathing fire. Why does that happen? It happens because we've lost sight of who God is and we've lost sight of who we are in him and what he has done for us and his love of covenant brotherhood. We want to take that away this morning. Well, let me give you an illustration. Now, I think that if my preaching professors from seminary were sitting here, they would be shaking their head. They're saying, you're never going to be able to pull this off. It's too confusing. Don't try. I'm going to try anyway. So that means you're going to have to pay special attention here because this could be a little confusing, but I'm going to do my best, and I think it's worth it if we can capture it in our hearts and minds. I want to read to you just a brief paragraph from a lesser-known book by C.S. Lewis. You probably know him best for the Chronicles of Narnia or the book Mere Christianity and others. But this is from a book called The Screw Tape Letters. If you're not familiar with this book, you ought to pick it up at, on Amazon or the library and read through it. It is fascinating, and it is engaging, and it's equipping. Because in this book, what C.S. Lewis does is he imagines what it must be like for demons to rationalize about God's people and how they might tempt them, how they might drag them down from their gospel commitments, from their love of Christ and brother. And so he talks about this interchange between two 
basically two characters. There's Screwtape, who is a senior demon in the devil's army, and there's his nephew, a junior demon, he's kind of working his way up and learning, named Wormwood. Screwtape is constantly giving Wormwood all kinds of advice on how he can be the best tempter that he can be and how he can cause the most trouble he can for God's people. And this is one that I think, this little paragraph, helps so much to shine light on why it is that you and I often act like Edom and we stifle compassion. Listen carefully, and hopefully we can prove the professors wrong. It says this, I have been writing hitherto on the assumption that the people in the next pew afford no rational ground for disappointment. He's thinking about a Christian who is sitting in church, and what he wants to do is to keep this Christian sitting there thinking highly of himself, esteeming himself for what a great Christian he is, and they're making the assumption together that the person sitting next to that person is not any type of elite Christian, is not really very faithful, and so there's no reason that their patient should feel disappointed. And he says, of course, if they do, if they do give reason for disappointment, if the patient knows that the woman with the absurd hat is a fanatical bridge player or the man with the squeaky boots, a miser, and an extortioner, then your task is so much the easier. You can hear what's going on. Here's the Christian or the patient sitting in the pew, looking at the person next to him, knowing certain things that he's, he's seen on social media or he's heard about other places from friends, and he's thinking, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like her. I'm so glad I'm not like him. He's right where Screwtape wants him. And Wormwood is quickly rising the ranks of the demon ladder. All you then have to do, he says, is to keep out of his mind the question, if I, being what I am, can consider that I am in some sense a Christian, why should the different vices of those people in the next pew prove that their religion is mere hypocrisy and convention? Uh-oh. They've got to keep that thought out of his mind. You may ask whether it's possible to keep such an obvious thought from coming into his, from occurring uh, even to a human mind. It is, Wormwood, it is. Handle him properly, and it simply won't come into his head. Listen to this. He has not been anything like long enough with the enemy, that's God, to have any real humility Yet, what he says, even on his knees, about his own sinfulness is all parrot talk. At bottom, he still believes he has run up a very favorable credit balance in the enemy's ledger by allowing himself to be converted and thinking that he is showing great humility and condescension and going to church with these smug, commonplace neighbors at all. Keep him in that state of mind as long as you can. Do you see what has happened to the patient? Do you see what has happened even to Edom? Do you see what happens even to me? The patient has lost any sense that he is a needy sinner as well. And the demon Wormwood works to keep that sense far away. That is how stifling compassion happens. It happens by esteeming ourselves as something that we are not. 
And therefore, as long as we think so highly of ourselves, when we look at others, we don't see people in need of compassion. We don't see people like us, brothers from the same womb and a covenant of brotherhood who need help and hope and grace, people who move toward them. We suck the air right out of our compassion. So what's the answer? The answer is simply this second application for this morning. What you and I must do intentionally every day, you must feed your compassion. But you have to know what to feed your compassion in order to grow it. Just as stifling the oxygen from it will kill it and replace it with fire, what you need to do is know what to feed it. And here's what you feed it. You have to feed it a daily dose of law and gospel. Let me tell you what I mean by that. When we think of law in our church as we read the Bible, we're thinking of God's revelation of his great character, his righteous expectations, who he is, what he's like, what he expects us to be. And therefore, when we look into that law like a mirror, we see people who are very ugly. We have in no way measured up to the glorious God of all the universe, who is righteous and holy and perfect. He's abounding in loving kindness. Rather, we look in the law and we see our sin, don't we? We see in that sin, though, a good work of grace and that we know our desperate need when we see it rightly. We look into the law and the law does its good work, and that is to drive us into despair. Now, to the world, they would hear that and think that's utter nonsense. I hope that you don't think that's utter nonsense, that the best thing that could happen to us is for us to be driven down into despair over our great need of grace. That's exactly what's the best thing that could happen to us because it's not all law. It's also gospel. That's why if you want to grow compassion in your heart, you need to feed it law. You need to feed it the, the constant daily reminder that you are in need of grace, that you are not where you should be, that you, in fact, are a mess. Not inherently good, inherently a rebel. And then immediately on the heels of that law, you must not stop there. You have to feed in the gospel. And the gospel is what? It's not that announcement about what you and I have done or what we should do. It's not another law. It's not a list of commands and do's. It doesn't even put our attention on us. It entirely distracts us and puts our attention on another. It puts our attention on Christ so that when we look to him, we see the giver of grace. We see the great Savior that is needed by great sinners and when you feed your heart, when you feed compassion, law and gospel, it swells to life. You have a totally different view of the people around you. You have a totally different view of how God might use you. You become an ambassador of grace. Can you think of anything better than that? It's an enormous struggle. I know that we don't, any of us, measure up. I say those words and I'm immediately convicted by them because I, I know all of the ways that I continue to fail. But again, it reminds me of my need for grace. 
And yet we want to feed it. We want to grow it. We want to be those ambassadors that God has called us to be. Do you know what the very greatest apologetic in the entire world is? It is your life. You can go out into the world and you can give the unbelieving world all kinds of arguments, even biblical ones, and it might not make any difference. They can find a way to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and twist the words around and make them mean something different. They may refute what we say, but they cannot refute how we live. And what a privilege that is, that we would be ambassadors of this grace, that we'd be ambassadors of compassion. But it's not a guarantee, is it? I have to tell you, sometimes I'm quite disturbed by even what I see among Christians in the world on social media, posting six, seven, eight, nine, ten times a day about the pandemic, about political wranglings, about all of these other things in the world. And that's not to say that they're they're unimportant. But if that's what our life becomes, if that's what our, our words become, we are wasting our lives. What a waste of time when we could right here be feeding our compassion, not stirring up the controversy, not creating the conflict, but bringing in the grace, bringing in compassion, bringing in truth. Our lives are an apologetic. What is that apologetic saying? This is what we want to ask, and this is what we want to answer. It's saying gospel. So feed your compassion, law and gospel. Feed that bad news of the law. Feed that good news of the gospel. And watch God grow your love for other people. Watch him grow. God, please grow my love for other people. Make us like you. We don't want to stifle our compassion. And we certainly don't want to do what else Edom did. And that's next and last. Edom maintained fury. This is incredible language right here. This is, this is a resting language that catches my attention and gets a hold of me, and I cannot shake it. Continuing on the second half of verse 11 and then into verse 12, Amos goes on and he says, his anger also tore continually, and he maintained his fury forever. Edom's broken covenant of brotherhood, in addition to being stifled by compassion in the heart, had another character coming out, and that's the character of anger and fury. And that's what you would expect, isn't it? If you suck all the oxygen of, of gospel, law and gospel out of your lungs, there's no compassion. All you're doing is breathing in fire. What's coming out? Fire, fury tearing continually. What amazing language there. His anger tore continually. You've noticed over the last few weeks, we've had multiple allusions to lions. Sometimes to God, who's a roaring lion. He's the lion of the jungle. But then you're seeing these fallen creatures like us twisting and perverting 
the picture of a lion as they take it on and they tear continually. It's the same kind of illusion, tearing at prey, but doing it continually. As they stifled their compassion, notice that second part, he maintained his fury forever. Literally, it's an overflow of an outburst continually. That's what fury forever means. But what I want you to see is this, how it happened. This is where it really hits home. Because you and I, though there's lots of things we have a hard time understanding, we don't have any hard time understanding anger. Oh, we get anger. We understand anger. This is coming from a person that that knows very well my own history of anger, my own present propensity for anger. I think back about those days, and I just cringe. I cringe at the way I, I talk to people, the way that I... I I kicked the ball with profanity when I made mistakes on a basketball floor or running cross country in high school and somebody cut me off. And so I, right at the finish line, was trying to get this good kick, got my way. So I I went up to him and I leaned over while he was huffing and puffing with hands on his knees and I whispered in his ear things that I, I will never repeat. Fury. Well, we get anger, don't we? What I want you to see here, just as we saw with remembering the covenant of brotherhood, is that these things don't happen by accident. That's why we see the word maintain. It's a key word in the text. It's a key word to understand what's going on in their hearts and in ours. Every person here, including me, is every moment of every day in maintenance mode. There's only one mode, and that's because none of us are neutral. Our hearts are never neutral. We're never sitting in between two things. We're either one or the other. Therefore, we're maintaining one, or we're maintaining the other. Here for the people of Edom, we see what they were maintaining, don't we? They were maintaining fury. How is that possible with all that you and I know of grace? All that you and I know of the God who is the lion who roars, of all that he has done in our hearts, how is that possible? That we would do the same thing and we do. It's because of what is inside of us. I will never forget this one short line from a short story that I read by Stephen King. The name of it is 1922. It's like a lot of Stephen King's things. And of course, I can give the disclaimer again and again that Uh, quoting a book or a movie in a sermon uh, does not condone everything that that person says or does, certainly. But I will tell you this. Stephen King is one of the few people, likely an unbeliever, that is more in tune with the human condition than probably most Christians. As twisted and strange and ugly his stories can be, He is telling stories about real sin. He's telling stories about the real human heart. And in this one, 1922, about Wilfred James, a farmer uh, out in the middle of a cornfield who has a, a wife who's threatening to take away his son and sell off their land and leave him with nothing. He has a horrific response, of course. 
But it's this line that so caught my attention, and I've said it to myself over and over again. Wilford James, as he's plotting the end of his spouse, he sees this going on in himself, and he says this, I believe that there is another man inside every man, a stranger, a conniving man. That's the human heart. That's what the Bible continually tries to tell us, and that's the answer to the question, how? How could we ever be like that? How could they ever be like that? Because inside every man or every woman is another man or woman. It's the man or woman of remaining sin. And it's that person, it's that remaining sin that maintains fury, sucks the oxygen from compassion and feeds it to the fury. It can happen in any of our hearts. And so as we come to a close this morning, it's helpful for us to understand how to be able to make sense of that. It's all about how heart idols rise up in our hearts there's always a progression to it, and we can put it this way as a helpful way to remember and identify when it's happening in your heart and mind. It goes like this. You hear your heart saying four things in this order, and you know you have a, a rising heart idol. You know that that conniving man is seeking to maintain the fury. It starts off with something simple and innocent, I want. Even wanting a good thing can become a bad thing because quickly the conniving man within each of us feeds and feeds and feeds and suddenly morphs I want into I need. And from there, it, it rises in strength in our hearts and it comes to the point of saying, I will judge you because you're not giving me what I want. You're not giving me what I need. And then finally, I punish we don't know exactly what the heart idol in the hearts of Edom are, but this is what happens. The want becomes a need. The need leads to a judge. The judge punishes. That's, what, that's how we, we maintain that fury. But we, by grace, by truth, have a way to stop it, how to bring it back down again. How? I just want to remind you of a few verses Right at the end here, they came from our public reading of Scripture in Psalm 145, verses 5 through 9. Listen to this. If you find yourself with a rising heart idol, here's what you ought to do. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. That's what you must do in those moments of I want, I need, I judge, I punish, People will speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness. They will burst forth in speaking of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his mercies are over all his works. Simply put, to boil it down, what must we do to reverse the heart idols? We must keep our grip on the gospel. We must answer it with gospel truth. We must look to God's marvelous works, to his compassion and his slow anger. 
We must ask him for help, even reversing the statements. Back down the ladder when you find yourself in that situation and you just want to punish somebody because they've broken your law. Here's what you should say. I've not been punished. I'm not the judge. Christ will meet my needs and I can want good things under his sovereign care. You see how that comes back down again? It's helpful truth for our daily lives, just as we're seeing here. Oh, if Edom, if Edom had done that, if they had maintained compassion, if they had maintained grace and mercy, if they had maintained gospel, what a difference that will make because we've seen how serious God is about fury. When he sees fire, he brings fire. God, may it never be for us. We know that our change begins. We know that our hope begins in Christ and ends in Christ. And so if you're here with us today and you're not a Christian, we encourage you to come to Christ. He's the one who can help us. He is the one who maintains compassion for us. He is the one who never forgets. He always remembers his covenant faithfulness to us, and that is the hope of our lives. So I encourage you to come to Christ today if you have not. Let us be a part of that. Let us encourage you. Let us help you. If you have questions, we want to meet with you and talk more about Christ, who's been so good to us. And now as we prepare to sing again, I hope that you will take this text with you. Apply it to your lives. As I try to apply it to mine, we do this together in our church. And I want to invite you to stand as we pray and ask God to help us. And then as we sing again, please stand. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word. It is so true. It is so full. And we pray that you'd help us. We pray that you'd help us by your grace to, to remember your covenant love. And by that, to remember the covenant that you have brought us into as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we would maintain our compassion, that we would feed compassion, the oxygen that it needs to grow, and that you would make us ambassadors of your gospel. All the more, God, we know that we need your help. Inside each of us is a conniver. We long for the day that you return and that conniving man or woman is finally put away. That we would know you perfectly by your grace and by your mercy without sin in the kingdom to come. With that, we say, Lord, come quickly. But as you tarry and wait, we know that you have given us your spirit and your grace, and we pray you would continue to work in us in these important ways which we have heard this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.